Thank you, Rory. Uh, it's a lot of work for Rory. He's up there every Sunday, and just appreciate him uh, leading us in uh, music Sunday after Sunday. Um, also, appreciate Helen. If you eat on Sunday morning and you have snacks, it's because <laughs> Helen is laboring with Paul uh, to prepare that for us. And so um, I'm just uh, grateful for, for your service to us. Thank the Lord in you. Uh, our opportunity now is to look at the Gospel of, of John uh, yet again, so I invite you to turn to, uh, to John. Uh, the conversation we left off looking at last Sunday uh, was left with Jesus saying, uh, rise, let us go, and that conversation is actually going to continue on here in chapter 15. So where exactly this conversation is taking place is actually debated. Um, it could be that it continues right there in the upper room. So you might think of, for example, having uh, people at your home with friends and family or maybe having a Bible study, and then someone says, okay, well, it's time to go, and then everyone kind of gears up and gets ready to go only for the conversation to continue and to carry on. And so that may be what is happening here. The Lord says, rise, let us go. But the conversation uh, continues, continues on until finally there's like a more uh, legitimate, serious move uh, to leave. Or it could be uh, that this conversation is actually taking place um, on, the, on the road. So as they're walking and he heading to the brook of Kidron, where they're eventually going to cross over the brook and Jesus is going to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe they stop at the temple along the way. And so there are different debates in terms of where this conversation is taking place. But, but if there's one thing the conversation does remind us, it is that Jesus has a, a deep and abiding love for his disciples. And his desire is to continue to shepherd them and care for them and teach them until the very end. Um, isn't that just like him, right? Until the very end where he lays down his life and dies, he is ministering and caring for his disciples. And so I invite you to open your Bibles again to John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 11. The heading in your Bible may say, uh, I am the true vine or the vine and the branches. And so uh, this will be the passage 1 through 11 that we read this morning. So let's Hear God's word together. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we again come before you in prayer as we seek to honor you and to hear your word and to draw near to you and to delight in you and and to love you. We thank you for these words of our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking them to your disciples and for reminding them of what it means to be in union with you. We ask that you would bless now the teaching of your word. I pray for strength and for uh, the Spirit's wisdom and guidance, Lord, that you would uh, keep me uh, faithful to the, to the word, that you would not allow me to go astray, and that you would guard the hearts and the minds of your children from error. We pray that you would bless us now as we look to uh, learn a bit more about what you taught here and that you would um, richly accompany your word with power. We ask for your grace and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus gives us the goal. I love when that happens in Scripture, when there is actually a goal or an aim that's given. The whole gospel has an aim, as we've mentioned many times, right? that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So that gives us a context of the whole gospel. But I I love also within that gospel, there are times where the Lord lays out for us uh, a very specific reason for writing or saying what he said. And in this case, uh, verse 11 actually gives us two goals for what we just read. And what are those two goals? Jesus says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the first goal is for what we read and what we're going to go over is that the joy of Jesus may be in you. That is that they may share in Jesus's joy in their salvation and redemption. It was Jesus' joy to free us from guilt and for the chastisement that belonged to us, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, to have it laid on him. I think that needs to settle in, in our hearts, as Jesus says here. It should settle in our hearts that Jesus took and takes pleasure and joy in our redemption. I don't know if we often think of it that way. We often think of it from our perspective and how joyful should we be and how should our hearts be lifted up. And that's not wrong to think. But sometimes just pause and think about it from this perspective that your salvation and my salvation, it was actually Jesus's joy to purchase. 
as it says in Hebrews 12, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy that Jesus has for us, Jesus says, he wants it to be in you. And the reality is that joy comes with saving faith. So when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that joy is given and implanted in the heart of every believer by the Holy Spirit. It, it resides in you. And so Jesus says, I want you to be joyful with me. Not to hang our heads as if we follow and serve a defeated Lord who is not good to us. Have you ever met Christians like that? It's like, uh, what's that, Eeyore and uh, Winnie the Pooh, right? Woe is me. Sad. I'm depressed, right? The Lord doesn't, the Lord doesn't want his people to be depressed and downcast and saddened as if following Jesus as the Savior as if he's not good, as if he's not powerful, as if he's not glorious and, and reigning, right? He wants God's people to know his joy. It's all kinds of different personalities that we have. I understand that. So it's not, you know, everyone walking around smiling and, con well, yes, smiling, but you know what I mean. We're not all going to look exactly the same, but to be filled with joy, you know when you meet someone joyful, right? Let's just put it that way. You know what it looks like, so I don't need to explain it. But the second goal, he says, is that your joy may be full. So the joy which is ours in Christ, Jesus knows, is not always going to be experienced by us. But Jesus wants their individual joy to be filled up. He, he wants it to be perfected. So the reality is while we all have that joy in us by the Spirit because of saving faith and what Christ has done, the reality is that we are Eeyore sometimes. And the reality is we don't know that joy. And Jesus wants us to experience a joy that is ours, that is not temporary, and it's not fleeting. It, it's true that we're going to go through times of sadness. We're going to go through times in this life where, where life seems to be getting the best of us and where we, we seem to be losing ground and losing joy but the joy is there, as we said, and because it's there, and we know it never fails and it never passes away, Jesus knows that we can experience that and know the joy when faced with dread and anxiety and grief. And he wants us to cultivate that joy because in cultivating it, he knows that we will never be ultimately swallowed up in grief. We won't we will never be swallowed up in grief, no matter how bad it looks. He wants them to be assured of their salvation, you could put it like that, and filled with the joy of knowing it. 
So when it comes to these two goals, Jesus uses a metaphor here of the vine and branches to really drive that, those two goals home. And the metaphor does that by driving home a, a truth that is really glorious in the Christian walk. Um, it's a truth that, that I think we don't maybe think deeply enough about, but, but one theologian said if this is one of those truths that if you, you will see the joy of salvation if you can really plunge the depth of this truth. And the depth of that truth is actually our union with, with Christ. Our union with Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Because it's easy to think of Jesus as a savior outside of us, right? It's easy when we think about Jesus to think of Jesus as out there. A Jesus who did a work out on the cross and he, he accomplished it 2,000 years ago and to, to see Jesus in that way and he's a savior who, who did something and by that something now I'm objectively and legally considered justified, and it's a very, it's a, it can be a very cold, true statement, but it's out there. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus is not just a Savior who is out there, but Jesus is a Savior who is what? In here. Jesus is a Savior who dwells in the people that, that he redeems, there's a personal identification and relationship and fellowship with Jesus that makes our relationship with Jesus intimate and personal. If Jesus feel, feels distant, just someone out there, then either you don't really know Christ, or I would venture to say, maybe you haven't thought enough or learned enough about what it means to be united to Christ. And if you would take the time to dwell on that, you might understand that God, the Holy Spirit, because of what Christ has done, he dwells in us. And so the richness of that truth that we are in Christ and Christ is in us is beautiful. And it's, it's a reason for rejoicing. And so this union, this metaphor of the vine and the branches really draws out that union with Christ for us. Now, it can't cover everything about our union with Christ because our union with Christ covers every aspect. It, it undergirds every aspect of our redemption. But it does draw out some truths here, and it gives us enough, Jesus says, so that that floodgate of joy might be opened for, for us. He tells us this metaphor that his joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How does he do that? Or what does this really tell us then? Well, the first thing I want you to, besides the goal, but the first thing to notice about this metaphor, this is important, is that it begins this vine and the branches metaphor begins actually with Jesus' relationship to the Father. So in John 14, 31, 
That ended with Jesus saying, besides rise, let us go, just prior to that. He said, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying all of his ministry, all of his life, every detail of it was under the sovereign hand of his Father, and it was accomplishing, God the Father was accomplishing exactly what God had planned to do. Uh, And Jesus came in love to carry out this redemptive plan as he gives his life for sin. So together, the Father and the Son are united in love and in God's purpose of fulfilling God's redemptive plan. So that's what Jesus says at John 14, 31. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father, this unity, unity of love, unity of purpose, within the Godhead. And so Jesus says here, to begin this metaphor, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So by calling himself the vine, Jesus is saying that he is the source of all life and all fruitfulness, in other words. And in calling the Father the vine dresser, Jesus is saying that he is the one who will ensure that the vine produces all the fruit that he intends. As the vine dresser, he not only gives his attention to Jesus the vine, but he also gives his attention to you, to the disciples, the branches. Okay? So this relationship between the Father and the Son, in purpose, united in one, in one love, in one purpose, together, one God. But Jesus, the vine from whom all of these blessings flow, and the Father working through that vine, the Son, to produce not only the fruit of obedience from Jesus, but as our head representative, Jesus, the vine, then has branches that also the Father prunes that they may be fruitful and and faithful. Okay? These branches, Jesus goes on to say in in these verses, they are in him. No, Jesus goes on to say, those branches that are in him yet do not bear fruit the Father removes, okay, this is going to connect together, the Father removes those branches, and that is, to say he removes, it is to say that he cuts away the dry and dead branches, and he destroys them. Those branches in me, Jesus says, that bear fruit, the Father prunes and cultivates that they might become more fruitful. So here is Jesus, the vine, the Father, the vine dresser, um, talking about faithfulness and fruitfulness. And Jesus says, there are branches in me that do not bear fruit, that the Father cuts away and destroys, and they are ultimately burned. And then there are branches that bear fruit, and he prunes them, and they bear more fruit, and, they will, and they're stronger in faith, and he... And They grow in the vine. Now, 
Here's where you have to be a little bit careful here. As a metaphor, you have to be careful of pushing a metaphor too far and trying to draw things out of it, out of every detail of a metaphor or comparison that aren't necessarily meant to be the point. All metaphors eventually break down if you push them too far. And so what is the purpose of this metaphor? I, I, I say this because in that vine and vine dresser metaphor and the branches metaphor, you may be asking yourself, in what way, which is a good question if you are, this is a good way to read the Bible, right? In what way are these branches which do not bear fruit and are taken away in Jesus, the vine? Is Jesus saying that you can be savingly in Jesus, but ultimately be gathered and thrown into the fire and burned and come unto judgment? Can you have true union with Jesus, but ultimately be condemned having lost your soul and, and salvation? A lot of people are under that understanding of God's word. I, in fact, grew up in a church that taught that. That, that taught that you, you can lose your salvation in certain number of ways. You could lose your salvation if you do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? Um, I think there were six of them. And there are some people, and they would point to a passage like this, and they would say, see, Jesus says that they are in him, and then they are taken out and no longer in him, okay? The answer to that question, though, and we'll get to what he means by in me, but the answer to the question is, can one who is savingly in Jesus be removed from the vine? The answer is no. And we've already seen throughout this gospel, and you see it in all other passages of the New Testament, that that is not a possibility. And just to, to give you a few verses, uh, same gospel, John, Jesus says in John 6, 37 to 39, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. God's will is that Jesus lose nothing of all that he has been given, but it be raised up on the last day. John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, I and the Father are one. And so Jesus is saying, can't get in a much more secure place than that, right? In the hands of the Father, the Father and Jesus are one, and Jesus says no one, which is, how many does that leave that are capable? No one, all right? No one means no one, never means never. You will never be lost if you are a sheep that belongs to Jesus he will keep you secure. I mean, these things cannot get more 
clear, and there's lots of passages we could look at. So, so what is Jesus picturing here by a branch in him that is cast away? What does that mean? And I think to understand that, and I hope you're still tracking with me here, to understand that, I think it's important to understand a bit of the Old Testament context. Um, because this metaphor of vine and branches is often used regarding Israel, God's covenant people in, in the Old Testament, and their relationship to God. So you'll see in the Old Testament it says God planted a vine or he planted a vineyard and he tended to it and it only produced wild grapes. It was actually a, a degenerate vine that did not produce good fruit. It was fruitless. You, you see this in passages like Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. In fact, maybe I'll just read that passage for you, but if you're going to take notes, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 21 to 22, Psalm 80, verses 9 to 6, Ezekiel 15, 1 to 11. And so you have these passages that talk about Israel being this vine that was planted that was actually fruitless. And so Isaiah 5 says, for example, this is called, this is a vineyard song that was, that was uh, uh, written uh, about Israel before the Lord. And it says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? In other words, why didn't it bear the fruit for which I planted it? Why was it a degenerate vine and a fruitless vine and a and an empty vine. And so what happens is you see in the Old Testament that God pours out his judgment on this fruitless vine of Israel. He judges them in Psalm 80. He judges them in Ezekiel 15. God removes this faithless Israel and he cuts them off. And so Jesus is here and what he's doing is he is contrasting himself. He's calling himself the true vine. So in contrast to that bad vine, in contrast to that fake vine, that not real vine, Jesus actually says, I'm the true vine. I am the one that Israel actually pointed to, the one vine that would actually bring forth good fruit. And those that are in Jesus as the vine do the same. In fact, those branches in Jesus, the vine, cannot but bear good fruit, just like the good vine. Those branches in Jesus derive their life from Jesus. They produce fruit through the vine. The vine produces fruit rather through in these branches, in these branches 
cannot help but produce good fruit. That's another way of saying there are no true Christians without some measure of fruit. He will not be, Jesus will not be like fruitless Israel. He's the true vine. He will not be like fruitless Israel. He will be fruit-filled Israel as God intended all along. Those in him who do not bear fruit, in other words, is to say that they are not truly in him. Just like many were called Israel, but they weren't actually Israel. They weren't, they weren't really the true and the good vine. They were a fruitless vine. And those who do not bear fruit will ultimately prove themselves faithless, being fruitless, and they will ultimately be coming under divine judgment. That's pretty sobering. What he means is there are many who claim to be in the vine that are not actually in the vine. Many claim the name of Jesus, but they don't actually know Jesus. Many claim to do the work of Jesus that don't know Jesus. Many claim fruit, the fruit of Jesus that don't know Jesus. And on it goes. And if you're understanding the context here, this is already played out in the Gospel of John. John has already made the point in John chapter 2, verse 23, and in John chapter 6. Remember when he said that you, you are coming you are coming to me because your bellies might be filled, but you don't truly believe in me. And also in other places it says many, many came, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. There were many people coming to Jesus, many people coming near Jesus, claiming Jesus that John has already showed were actually not really in Jesus. And the perfect, most immediate example of that is who? Judas. Judas was right there. Judas said he believed. Judas walked. Judas ate with. Judas did ministry. But Judas was like that branch in Jesus that ultimately would be cut off, cast away, and destroyed. Now here's the thing, and this is what should make the hearts and yours filled with 
the joy of Jesus, because that's not a very joyful thought, is it? But here's what Jesus says to them in verse 3. So he says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me, those that does not bear fruit, those claiming but aren't really in him, he takes away. Every branch that does that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruit. And you're thinking, wow, he's going to cast off some people that are claiming. But he says in verse 3, to them, already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. So he, he doesn't want them to be, to be in fear, wondering, boy, Am I really in Jesus? He's actually saying, you, on the other hand, you are already clean. You are already pruned and being pruned by his word. This is a way of confirming their faith in Jesus and the fact that they are already washed. This is what Jesus said to them in John 13 when he was washing the disciples' feet. Do you remember that? Peter said, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no place with me. He says, the one who has been cleaned only needs to have his feet washed. And that was just a way of saying, already you're clean, Peter. I don't need to wash you. I just need to Wash your feet because, remember, we talked about that. You get dirty in the world, and they need to cleanse you and sanctify you. And so this is the same thing Jesus is saying here to them. You, you, on the other hand, you are, be comforted that you are already cleaned by by the word. You're already being pruned. And so a number of theologians, uh, commentators note that there's actually, in you, they say you can't really see it in, the, in English, but it, it, you can see it there in the Greek, is that there's a play on words here. And the play on words is this. The father cuts off, which is uh, the Greek word arie, okay? Every dead branch. The father trims, that's katharie, every fruit-bearing branch. And the disciples listening to Jesus are already clean, which is katharoi. Okay, so you've got these words because of the word Jesus spoke to them. These branches have already been started off clean and fruitful. God already began cutting through his word as he redeemed them and he called them to himself. And he gave them faith to believe in all that Jesus said. So they're already clean. They believed Jesus came in the flesh, the Son of God. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They believed that he was the bread of life and the living water. All these things Jesus taught them. They even believed that he would rise again and conquer death. They didn't understand exactly what that meant when Jesus would rise again. But do you remember John 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead and Jesus says to Martha, he says, do you believe that that I am the resurrection and the life? And what does she say? 
She said, yes, Lord, I believe that in the end you will raise again. So when they saw Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, they believed all these things that Jesus was telling them, even though they didn't quite understand it. And Jesus knows that their faith is in him. And Jesus says, you are clean. They believed the gospel and faith in Jesus alone as a means of being saved, and they were clean because of it. They were joined to the vine, living and producing fruit because of him and having the life and power of God abiding in them. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus said this so that his joy may be in you. Do you, do you see the connection now? They should be joyful that they are in Christ and he has redeemed them. This ought to fill their heart with joy. Jesus' joy is our joy. They are redeemed and cleaned and they are abiding in the vine. And so verse 4 says, that an imperative to live basically as we are in Christ, he says, abide in me and I in you. So now what does he mean here in verse 4? He's giving them an imperative. Abide in me and I in you. Why? Well, because, and the metaphor now carries on to the vine and the branches, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So they're clean, they're in Christ, and now Jesus is exhorting them. Now that you're in me and you're clean, now abide in me. If you are to live the most fruitful lives in Christ that can be lived, you must abide in Jesus. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? So if you're looking at your own life, and you're looking and looking at the fruitfulness of your life or the joy in your life, and you're wondering, wondering why am I not more fruitful or why am I not really joyful, Jesus is saying, well, you are not abiding in me. And abiding in Jesus means really to hold fast to Jesus and to cling to him. Stick close to Jesus. Don't wander away over there, away from Jesus. Don't, don't wander into things that Jesus doesn't delight in. Don't wander into a world of darkness and, and be filled with all these things of the world and then wonder, why do I not have joy? Why am I not being fruitful for Jesus? Well, it's because you're not sticking fast to Jesus. You're not, you're not holding close to Jesus. You're holding close to the world you're loving the things of the world and you're embracing those things 
and we cherish those things, but when it comes to abiding in Jesus and holding fast to Jesus, we just have much less desire for Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, a branch cannot bear fruit when it's off on its own. No branch can bear fruit that is, that is off and it's not receiving and taking the resources and the power and the life that comes from the vine, right? Abide in me. Abide in me, Jesus says, a vine, because you cannot bear fruit unless you are abiding in the vine, holding fast, drawing close, clinging to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we cannot bear any fruit. No fruit in our own strength. So, stick fast to him. He will uphold you. He will cause you to bear much fruit. All of the weights and burdens of the world, beloved. Jesus, the vine, can bear them. He will not wither. He will not break. So know the joy of your salvation. Jesus has lived for us, and he wants and died for us, and he wants his joy to be in us. Now, this leads us to verse 7 to 10. Jesus wants your joy to be full. It's not, it is not possible to increase the joy of Jesus once it's in you, right? It's a complete and perfect joy, but like we said, you may not experience it. It's possible that our joy may not be what it could be because we are not living a very fruitful life, and we may not know the assurance of the salvation which is ours. And if that is the case, Jesus says here, draw close to him in prayer and ask. Ask whatever you wish. But this is clarified in verse 16 as asking for fruit bearing, right? I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he's going to give it to you. If you ask for bearing fruit, he will cause you to bear fruit. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so, here's this key, prove to be my disciples. In other words, fruitfulness in the Christian life will bring glory to God, and it will confirm your own Christian faith. Glory to God is our chief end. Glory to God is what we live for, and to be always fearing and doubting, J.C. Ryle says, is a miserable work. But we ought to learn to labor in prayer that we might bear much fruit for the advancement of God's kingdom. 
So let us be a people of prayer, and if we're fruitless, let us get on our knees and ask the Lord that we might bear fruit for him. For with fruitfulness, with fruitfulness comes joy. You'll know more fully the Lord Jesus. Doesn't put you in the vine, but it reminds you of the vine that you're in. So Jesus goes on to assure them in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus' relationship with the Father is the pattern of our relationship to Jesus as his disciples. It's a relationship grounded in love. The Father loved Jesus perfectly and completely, and Jesus says he has the same perfect love for us, and which was ultimately demonstrated at the cross. The Father himself loves us, but Jesus, in a very unique, redeeming way, is the mediator of that divine love to us. And so in Jesus, we see that love looks, what love looks like, and the love that we are to ultimately emulate. John Piper said here, and we'll close with this. Being branches in the vine does not mean that we become the all-providing, all-enabling vine. It means that we are united to his life, his joy, his peace, his love. Not just that we have life and joy and peace and love, because we are in him, that's the Savior outside, but that we have his life and joy and peace and love because he is in us, right? It all works together. And so my prayer, beloved, is that each of us would know that being in Christ is where your life resides. You are in him, he is in you, and his desire is for us to abide in him and abide in his love, to draw close to him in obedience and in love so that we might be a fruit-bearing people, a people bearing the fruit of the kingdom of righteousness and peace and goodness and, and, and justice and so on. And so let that truth rest that blessed union rest in our hearts this morning, beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for um, the teaching that we have gained from it this morning. That, uh, Lord Jesus, you are the vine, and, and Father, you are the vine dresser. Um, you are the one who is, has removed these old dead branches that claim to be in you but really truly had no life and and you have placed us in that vine by faith and we abide in in the vine of our lord jesus christ by drawing close to him and receiving all of the nourishment and blessing that that he provides to us uh, lord jesus we thank you for saving us and redeeming us and for calling us to to bear fruit in your name we know that we cannot bear fruit on our own, that we have no strength or ability to 
live righteous lives, to be loving to the lost, to show mercy to those who are sick and compassion to those who are suffering, uh, but for the life that you have given to us. And we pray, uh, Lord, that you would help us to bear fruit in your name, that we would prove ourselves to be disciples and, and be so encouraged by that fruitfulness that we would be assured of, of our salvation. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to bear fruits of kindness in this world, to bear fruits of compassion and mercy and truth-telling, uh, to bear fruits of patience, to, to bear the fruit of uh, love, joy, peace in the spirit, that we would be good parents and, and good mothers and good fathers and, and good siblings and good friends, that we would be those who live in a dark and a, and a dying world, that we live in such a way that brings you glory and honor. Uh, Lord, we need your strength in order to carry out that task. Help us to be a people of the word as well, that we would be a missionary-minded people, that we would be a people that, that seek to bring the gospel to the lost, and we would be a people that hunger for the salvation of the lost. Uh, Lord, we, we need to be uh, a light in this world as you've called us to be, and sometimes we confess that we cover it up with the things of this world, as if we're hiding under a bushel and a pile of leaves. And Lord, we pray that you would help remove that from us and help us to remember uh, the joy of our salvation and give us the joy of obeying you and living for you. We ask for your grace and your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen.